This is the Holy Gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, according to St. Mark. Glory to you, O Lord. As soon as Jesus and the disciples left the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told him about her at once. He came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. Then the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sunset, they brought to him all who were sick or possessed with demons. And the whole city was gathered around the door, and he cured many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. In the morning, while it was still very dark, Jesus got up and went out to a deserted place, and there he prayed. And Simon and his companions hunted for him. When they found him, they said to him, everyone is searching for you. He answered, let us go on to the neighboring towns, so that I may proclaim the message there also, for that is what I came to do. And he went throughout Galilee, proclaiming the message in their synagogues and casting out demons. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. You may be seated. One of the privileges of being a pastor is that we are often invited into people's lives at time of serious illness. To prepare us for this ministry to the sick, our seminaries require that prior to ordination, we spend at least one summer working as a hospital chaplain. I was blessed to do my clinical pastoral education at the NIH in Bethesda, Maryland at its Clinical Research Center, the nation's largest hospital devoted exclusively to clinical research. Patients come to NIH from around the world to participate in clinical trials of new drugs. These are patients for whom conventional therapies have failed and whose last hope is often a clinical trial for an experimental treatment. The task of a hospital chaplain in this kind of setting is to provide spiritual care for these patients by praying with them and for them, listening to their stories, helping them to cope with their anxieties and fears, being a companion to them on a frightening and difficult journey, and reminding them that they are known and loved. During the summer of my training, I worked alongside four other chaplains in training, a rabbi, a Benedictine monk, and two fellow Episcopalians. On our first day on the job, after a brief training session, we were each given a roster of patients to visit that day. We knew almost nothing about these people, just a name, a room number, their disease, and a religious affiliation, if any. Our assignment was to go on rounds, knocking on doors of very sick people who were complete strangers to us to ask if they might welcome a short visit by a chaplain. 
I was responsible for the patients in the hematology oncology unit, most of whom were struggling with various forms of leukemia or lymphomas. As I started out that first day, I was petrified. I didn't know what to expect. I feared that I would be rejected, that I wouldn't be able to find the right words of hope or consolation, that I would be asked questions that I couldn't answer. I tried to fight off my insecurity by preparing as much as I could in advance. I memorized some prayers for the sick from my Book of Common Prayer so that I would have something at the ready just in case. I dog-eared my Bible for scriptural passages that might be comforting. And of course, I fretted. My very first visit was to an Ethiopian man. I will call him Ibu. Ibu had leukemia. Next to religious affiliation on his form, it said Orthodox Christian. I knocked on his door. No response. I gently pushed it open and walked into the room. I could see a wisp of a man lying in bed under a sheet, completely still, but with his eyes open. He stared at me blankly. Would you like a visit from a chaplain? I stammered. He said nothing. And then what should have been obvious occurred to me. He neither spoke nor understood English. So much for my carefully rehearsed prayers from our Anglican prayer book. Not sure if my presence was welcome or not, I slowly walked over to the chair next to Ibu's bed and sat down, looking for clues in his body language as to whether he wanted me there or not. Ibu laid there, silent, motionless, looking up at the ceiling, his breathing barely noticeable. In contrast to his stillness, my heart was racing, sweat gathering on my brow as my sense of inadequacy swelled inside me. Not knowing what else to do, I closed my eyes and offered a prayer for Ibu in the silence of my own heart. Just then, in the midst of my silent prayer, I felt Ibu's hand reaching for my own. Using the little energy he had, Ibu had quietly lifted his frail arm from under the bedsheet, reached over, and grasped my hand. He squeezed, and as he did, he closed his eyes. I could see that he was himself in prayer. We sat there in silent prayer together, hand in hand, for about 10 minutes, at which point he let go, signaling to me with his eyes that I could go now. We repeated this little ritual of quiet hand-holding and prayer each morning for the one week during which Ibu was in NIH for his round of drug therapy. Then he was gone, his treatment completed. I never saw him again and have no idea whether his treatment was successful or not. Given how advanced his leukemia was and the experimental nature of his drug therapy, it is frankly unlikely that Ibu was healed, at least physically. 
But I can tell you that real healing took place in that room. For one thing, with the grace of his touch, Ibu relieved me of my fears and healed me of my own sense of inadequacy. He taught me that ministry to the sick is more a ministry of human presence than it is a ministry of words, and that being present to another often requires making yourself vulnerable, risking a real encounter with a stranger, and in particular being willing to reach out to them with hands of compassion and care. I also sense that our visits were healing to Ibu as well, if not maybe for his leukemia, then certainly and more profoundly for strengthening his palpably deep relationship with God. All of which brings me to today's gospel text. In our lesson, Jesus hears that Peter's mother-in-law is sick in bed with a fever. So he goes to her home, kneels beside her bedside, takes her hand, lifts her up, inviting her to stand. No words are exchanged. Jesus' compassionate touch is enough. It is a remarkably straightforward story. And at the core of it is the sheer grace inherent in Jesus' simple presence. God became human in Christ, it seems, not merely to teach us, not merely to forgive our sins and redeem us, not merely to show us a new way of being human. God also became human in Christ so that he could touch us, connect with us in the most physical sense, letting us know that we are not alone on this journey and that our wholeness is his deepest desire. Our God is not some distant observer who merely notices our struggles. Rather, the mystery of the incarnation is about how God freely chose to become one of us so that he could reach out, touch, and restore us. Now let me offer one cautionary word about today's gospel lesson. For these stories of healing by Jesus raise a natural and uncomfortable question. If Jesus can heal Peter's mother-in-law, why doesn't he heal me? Or my close friend who is dying of cancer? Or what about poor Ibu? Are we to conclude that our prayers in these situations are unheard? Or worse, that some of us are not as deserving of Christ's healing as Peter's mother-in-law? That's not what these stories mean. It is a mistake to view our prayers for healing in such transactional terms, as if we are placing an order with God for a certain short-term medical outcome. The purpose of prayer is not to win any particular physical result, but rather to draw us into a deeper relationship with God and his loving purposes for us, 
so that we can begin to trust that God will always care for us, whether in this life or the next. For the truth of the matter is that our lives on this earth are short, and our bodies stay healthy for only so long before they begin to age and fail. That is the nature of our creaturely condition. And while it is natural to hope and pray for long and healthy physical lives and for healing from those illnesses that sometimes beset us, we would do well to remember that our ultimate destiny is not in these decaying bodies we now inhabit, but to draw nearer to our God and to each other in the mystery of eternal love. It is not our bodies that need healing so much as our hearts. Let me illustrate this point by closing with a story told by the Yale surgeon Richard Seltzer in his memoir, Mortal Lessons, Notes on the Art of Surgery. I stand by the bed, Dr. Seltzer writes, where a young woman lies. Her post-operative face has left her mouth twisted, palsied, clownish-looking. I had no choice but to cut the tiny twig of a facial nerve, the one to the muscles in her mouth, so that I could remove the cancerous tumor in her cheek. Her young husband is in the room. He stands on the opposite side of the bed, and together they seem to dwell in the evening lamplight, set apart in their own private space, his hand holding hers under the bedsheets. Then she turns to me and asks, Will my mouth always be like this? Yes, I say. It will. I had to sever the nerve. She nods and is silent. But her young husband smiles. I like it, he says. It's kind of cute. And he bends down to kiss her crooked mouth. I am so close to the couple <coughs> that I can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate hers, to show her that their kiss still works. I hold my breath in that moment, overcome with the wonder and the grace of it all. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon from Holy Trinity Evangelical Lutheran Church in Newington, New Hampshire, part of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. You can find us at htelc.com. And don't forget, you are loved.